This is my exit plan. Here we come to the start of the turning point of my life. This is my pivot, my watershed, where I could have fallen one way or the other. It's a sliding doors moment, I suppose. Look, I'm going to include this first journal to set the scene a little. I, I'm, I'm still pretty torn up about getting fired. Man, I, I should have rejoiced in being freed in getting the chance to figure my crap out. Or maybe that's what I should be doing now instead of constantly reminding myself and you, my pleasant listener, of my impending doom. Maybe, well, maybe this is the true freedom. And I had, oh, Jesus, I had to confront my future and destiny. But look, how is it any different to any other day? I mean, you take your life in your hands every time you walk out the door. I mean, heck, even if you just lay in bed, how is this imagined death any worse than being run over by a truck? Perhaps just being run over by a truck or struck by lightning or crushed by a rampaging elephant are threats that we just dismiss as just too unlikely. Or maybe we face them so many times that we just forget about it. The number of times a rampaging elephant has nearly hit me. I just don't think about it anymore. But anyway, here is the start of my rise and fall. Or maybe it's both. These books are so dumb. They're total drivel. And I reckon that the author must have thought he was being super clever and scary or, or weird. Ooh. I mean, just collecting was overly dramatic. It was like it was an orchestrated film. I mean, I decided to take the train, even those uh, great big black clouds of threatening thunderstorms. And it's just, just driving that far is just such a pain. It's much easier sitting on the train and just play games on my laptop. Of course, when I tried to get off at Perth Underground to switch lines, guess who was there? That same moron from the other day who was dithering at the door. I mean, get out or stay on. Just make the decision. Am I the only human on earth able to think for himself? Anyway, I finally got off and dodged around some lunatic wearing a beanie, a scarf and blacked out ski goggles. I walked about a half hour in the wrong direction. Like, seriously? Yeah. It turns out I'm easily distracted by cranks. Anyway, I finally got to the house with evening closing in, though it was pretty hard to tell considering the heavy layer of cloud that felt like a, a low ceiling I was going to bump my head into all day. In that gloomy, shadowless light, the old Queen Anne house looked pretty grim. When I could see the heavy velvet curtains were still drawn shut. At least I didn't have to deal with the gate. It was thrown open. Looked like it had been kicked open. Probably just someone impatient getting their worthless bits of crap. Anyway, the door was a little open. Uh, as in, like, you know, when is a door not a door? Like, when it's ajar. So just inside, past the old bleach stains on the entry carpet, uh, um, there was like a little note on the table. It said, here are the books. Take them. Sorry I won't be able to see them leave. This is the last of it. I'm done. 
It's a strange way to say, please take the books. So I've got no idea where the guy was. Uh, he, he might have been downstairs in the basement. It's like I heard a, a creaking noise from down there. So, I, you know, I assume it was the basement. It certainly came from under the floor. It sounded like an old tire swing hanging from a tree. There was sort of a, a creak, and then it went quiet, another creak, distinct sort of sing, swinging sound. Anyway, I piled the books into the little wheelie suitcase I brought with me, and just to test my nerves, there's this massive crash of thunder. I thought the world was coming to an end. So anyway, I, I freaking hightail out of there in pretty good order. I'd already transferred my money, uh, so I had the books. Didn't want to get caught in the storm. I left pretty quickly. That's you know, that's the only reason I left quickly, of course, just because I, I didn't want to get wet. So I made it back to the train okay, but my walk from the train back to my car was like going for a swim. And the rain absolutely hammered down. Of course I didn't take an umbrella because, ooh, I won't need that. It'll, it'll just get in the way. I don't like thinking back to that house. But given the contents of the book, I see it in a very different way. I don't think that estate agent is going to be doing any more sales. And I'm pretty sure I wasn't alone in that house. There's no way of knowing if the house was everything it seemed because I am not going back there. Look, anyway, I'll get to the journal that starts to unravel things a bit. I mean, in part, it unravels my sanity a little. Look, this is going to give you a taste of what I'm up against and maybe, just maybe, you'll start to see what I'm, I'm going to do and why I'm going ahead. Well, hopefully this podcast strikes home for someone and it isn't just taken as fanciful fiction. Okay, well, the rain is really pissing down out there. So for tonight's edition, I thought I'd read to you a lovely passage from one of my new old books. It's called Catalogue of the Various Lost Denizens of the Old World and is written by David Geldstein in 1823. <clears throat> my, my best narration voice. October 24, 1820. I arrived in a small village I'm yet to discover the name of, just after noon. I was led here by news that three people had been accused of being ensorcelled by the power of a vampire. The three were beheaded, staked and burned along with a corpse that had been dug up. Evidently, such things are common in these parts of Romania, and bodies are often exhumed and examined some years after burial to inspect for signs of vampirism. My experience of the children of Lilith has been that they are not so clumsy as to simply lay about in their coffin waiting to be dug up. I would also question how this Zaluka managed to leave the grave to perform the ensorcelment if they were still buried under feet of earth. I have other thoughts on this case. The prior week, one... Arnold Paole, I think that's how you pronounce it, who knows. The prior week, one Arnold Paole, an ex-soldier turned farmer, died while haying. He'd been suffering a drawn-out illness preceding his death. 
He was described as being listless, pale, glassy-eyed, and slow of wit. He would stand in the threshold of doors, appearing undecided before moving through. This behaviour is most often associated with victims of a Maroi. A vampire, yes, but not like the romances would have it. As Voltaire wrote in his Philosophical Dictionary, These vampires were corpses who went out of their graves at night to suck the blood of the living, either at their throats or stomachs, after which they returned to their cemeteries. The persons so sucked waned, grew pale, and fell into consumption, while the sucking corpses grew fat, got rosy, and enjoyed an excellent appetite. It was in Poland, Hungary, Silesia, Moravia, Austria, and Lorraine that the dead made this good cheer. It is a misconception that all vampires were Lilith's kin. These Maroi, the soulless revenants, can also be described as a Luca, or vampire, but though they also subsist on the essence of man, they are all but mindless in their pursuit of life's flame. The three accused were likely innocent of the murders they were executed for, though doubtless they were less than stellar members of their local community, and were killed more out of a lack of popularity than any real guilt. Tonight, I will lay awake and attempt to ambush the Maroi hunting this town. Sorry, haunting this town. You'd think I'd be able to read a bit better, wouldn't you? Uh, let's see, where was I? Arnold Paole is survived by a younger brother who will now surely be the next victim, if the feeding has not already begun. Maroi tend to be drawn to bloodlines. They often seek out their own families or families they were close to when alive and work their way through the family tree. I would need to also take certain precautions with Arnold's grave to ensure he doesn't rise as a spectre to haunt the village as sometimes happens with victims of Maroi. The safest way to dispatch a Maroi is find its nesting ground, often near the cemetery they were buried in, and pull it into the light of the day. This is best done in the fullness of day, but even the waning light of the sunset will do. While the sun is out, the Maroi enters a deep sleep state, making them indistinguishable from a corpse. In this state, in this state, what am I? Okay, <clears throat> back to being serious, David Gildstein. In this state, they are no threat at all and completely vulnerable. The sun will burn them rapidly and completely. Failing that, they can be staked with silver or simply decapitated and burned. However, it is important to burn them completely as any uncharred remains can house their undead spirit and allow them to continue their evil work. It is fortunate they are not clever enough to purposefully remove some portion of themselves to hide in a separate vault. For those that follow me and read this, which I guess is me, I will add some caution here about the known powers of a Maroi. Oh goody, I get to find out what this guy reckons uh, these Maroi were up to, eh? Okay, they can fly. The force that usually binds a body of the earth. Sorry, again, I, I've got a dreadful time reading. The force that usually binds a body to the earth and sticks us to the ground doesn't seem to apply to the Maroi, who are capable of flight like a feather on a breeze. 
They won't swoop and dive like a bird, but you can be sure that walls or chasms are no barrier to them. They are capable of merging with shadows to become invisible. A maroi that steps into darkness will no longer register on your eye. It is as if the unnatural form doesn't interact with light in the usual fashion. Likewise, they don't appear in mirrors except as faint blurs, and it is speculated they will not appear on photographic medium. I have found, looking through a Star of David, or down the length of a crucifix, will reveal them, however. I have heard no compelling evidence to support this, but I also believe they cannot hide within a church or a holy sanctuary, though they can enter. The last power that I know of, and have confirmed from prior encounters, is the Maroi's chill touch. To be grasped by a Maroi is to be gripped by death itself. The chill of their hands spreads unnatural numbness through your limbs and snatches the breath from your lungs. When dealing with the Maroi tonight, I will be wearing heavy leathers with thick wool underneath. This won't spare me if the Maroi is determined, but they lack the strength they had in life, and if I keep my wits about me, I should have enough time to break contact and escape. My next journal entry will detail my success, or will be blank if I fail. Well, looks like Davo was successful, because this book goes on in the same way for quite a while. I mean, this this uh, entry here this is pretty much a good example of the sort of drivel in these books. I mean, it's kind of interesting, but it's a fair old nonsense. I mean, I see listless, glassy-eyed shufflers pause in doorways every day on the train. I mean, there's that one guy... Hmm. And the one following him all wrapped up. Uh, nah, come on. Yeah, that's it. That's how Mass Hysteria starts. Yep. Maroi. How was I supposed to react? This is probably the part where you roll your eyes and figure this podcast is just some second-rate attempt at the War of the Worlds broadcast. I know how you feel. I felt the same way too. But I found it easier to stomach over time. You'll see. This is my exit plan. listening. The next episode will be posted at the same time next week. In that episode, the narrator witnesses something troubling that leaves him wondering how to cope. Visit gravityundone.net to learn more.